0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello everyone, I'm Sam Fry and welcome back to another episode of Technique, this monthly podcast where we talk to artists about how they're using technology. This month we're talking about interactive narratives, which I'll tell you more about after this music. Music So this month's interview is hosted by Richard, who speaks to Krishna Stott about his work and the work of his company. Here's Richard saying a few words about Krishna.
1: Welcome to this edition of Technique, the podcast from createhub.com. Today I'm talking to Krishna Stott, who is a Manchester-based digital interactive creative and whose company, Bellyfield, primarily works in the field of interactive narrative.
0: So yes, this is an interview with Krishna, and he is a story and technology pioneer who works with modern audiences, mainly with his company Bellyfield, who essentially work as a digital innovation partner for forward-thinking universities, businesses, and other individuals. In this podcast, they talk quite a bit about digital storytelling in general, but also about social media and why Krishna particularly likes Snapchat. Now, you might have been able to hear from Richard's introduction that the audio quality on the interview isn't the best we've had, but I'm sure the conversation itself will keep you going. So I'll hand over to the interview, which starts with Krishna talking a bit about his background and what got him into interactive narratives in the first
2: place. I was born and grew up in Shropshire the farmlands in the midlands i was kind of obsessed with music and that was my sort of driving creative force growing up the only other thing that kind of came into that was playing computer games and i guess the music side of my sort of passions when i was growing up really has affected what i do and the way that i approach stuff now after i was a musician i got bit jaded with the whole sort of music business and I started getting interested in more visual media and filmmaking and the technology that I got to do films and run the business of films and do sort of post-production films was kind of breaking out into more of a kind of interactive machine and networked machines and that was something that really captured my imagination at that time that would have been about 1995 and uh, we were seeing lots of interesting things like the MediaMatic CD ROMs from Amsterdam and the big, big experimentation really around what kind of networks and code could do with traditional linear kind of media. And that really sort of drove me forwards. And although I was making films and, and you know, my day-to-day job was kind of films and video. I spent a lot of time experimenting with what could be called kind of new storytelling, media-driven experiences. And, yeah, I spent a long time doing that sort of stuff. And then between '95 and 2007, I made a lot of interesting experiments. Some failed, some succeeded. And in 2007, we won a Webby Award for an interactive film. And that changed everything, really, because it validated all of the things that I've been trying to do, trying to make things that didn't exist. And I was trying to talk to people in conventional media about that and trying to raise money and trying to sort of make people aware of the potential in in kind of new types of story experiences, interactive stories, kind of social-driven stories. And to be honest, I spent a lot of time knocking on doors and getting rejected, and then all of a sudden I win an award and then everybody wants to talk to me and I get paid to be a consultant and it's a, it's an interesting route it's I wouldn't recommend it because then you might spend an awful lot of time aiming for something not getting it and it screwing up your plans i mean really the reason we won it is because we were making extremely high quality innovative work that was intuitive and easy to use so putting that in front of like awards people we did really well it wasn't really a strategy as such i mean the strategy was to make great work there's no real kind of business models for interactive storytelling uh, apart from games i think or Marketing campaigns, where you're kind of dealing with the devils of advertising and and marketing, which is kind of interesting, but that's never really been my world. There's no real broadcast TV film tie-ins that aren't marketing. Games, I mean, I find myself moving more towards games now and in a way, I wonder if all the years kind of experimenting in the semi wilderness of prototyping and trying to create new things, I wonder if that time wouldn't have been better spent getting embedded in the games industry, which is where interactive stories have really thrived. I mean, when I've told people what I do for a living and I say I make interactive stories, if I had a pound for every time somebody said, "You mean like those books, those interact- yeah, yeah. choose-your-own-adventures?" then I wouldn't have to work. I'd be a millionaire. I think there is a value in those things. I think they're a great way of getting the audience involved. They're not the best way to tell a story. I think those kind of unusual ways of kind of engaging an audience and and letting the, the narrative take kind of different turns... I think there is a value in that, and I think we're seeing a lot more overground kind of commercial use of those things that used to be the, the kind of area of nerds, really, or how it was perceived. I mean, I was never really into Choose Your Own Adventure. I mean, I've made some, and I've found some interesting things out about that kind of format, but I think, is, I think it is interesting. I mean, it doesn't make the best stories, I don't think, but it can make a really great audience experience.
1: I mean, clearly with games and with consoles and the power of um, cloud computing behind it and all of that stuff, there's, I think, and given the inherent nature of gaming, there, there seems to be a more obvious opportunity um, in that for interactive storytelling. I mean, what, what are some of the things you sort of are seeing in that area that sort of make you think, ooh?
2: I just think it's always been there. And, you know, some games have a great premise that's a story, premise that gets you to play them. Some games have no story whatsoever, no, no premise. I mean, I'm not so keen on the kind of cinematic titles like Grand Theft Auto. The kind of open world games are really interesting. Obviously, some of that's kind of authored, but it's authored in a way that's very kind of choose-your-own-path, take-your-own-journey, discover via-your-own-decisions. And I think that's extremely exciting, I mean, I'm also sort of studying games because we're, we're going to launch some games in the next year or so, and I'm so I'm studying a lot of new games and old games and trying to figure out where the kind of magic of story is. And I'm, you know, there's a few kind of interesting things like Journey and, and before that, ICO, and these games that aren't where you're not playing a character who talks; you are that character. It's like you are the game. It's a lot of things that I have kind of discovered, really, and it kind of really has made me feel pretty good about the world, is that I I do a lot of things from a fan's perspective, because I was obsessed with music, buying a seven-inch single and looking at the cover and listening to it and reading what's in between the grooves and hearing, like, maybe a little bit of the band chatting in the background before the song starts. To me, that was, like, what meant the most. I mean, I loved the songs, but I loved the fandom. The idea now... I mean, now... I just think the audience are way more powerful and and we, in a way, kind of media has to incorporate what the fans want. I don't think that's kind of completely across the board and obviously we still want authored experiences and we do want some sort of i guess as fans we want our authors or our storytellers or performers to be kind of up there on that pedestal but at the same time we have more access to the experience and we can dive deeper sometimes with the artists or the creators and that's how it should be i think i did i think that's a really brilliant thing and i think some kind of Dinosaurs really struggle with that concept because it's it's alien to have your audience that close and to to, listen, to be to, to kind of feel like taking notice of, of the fans is is important. But it, I think it really is in lots of respects.
1: I notice you, for instance, build. Uh, There's something on the website called Story World Building Blocks e-course. Obviously teaching people about this. A little bit about that project.
2: I can, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's live at the moment. I've just been doing a a sort of reassessment of everything that's on the site in order to put stuff back out. But, um, I mean, if anybody wants that, they they can email via the site anyway. It was a free course that we did just over seven days. Really, it was just to share some information that we used that we kind of learn doing interactive and social and transmedia type projects about developing a story world which is the idea of kind of expanding whatever the kind of nucleus the dna of your story might be to to a more rounded world of stories and i think that as a creative process, it's really, really valuable, and it's a lot of fun. And it, it makes good use of all of that backstory that we have in like linear stories, whether it be films, scripts, music. Any kind of creative output can build a story world around it. So it's great creatively, but also from a business perspective, I think when you're looking at things working over multiple platforms including live mobile internet social when you're looking at that and then you've got like the problem of visibility like if you're just producing a kind of linear video in a series or something like that then it's really hard to get visibility whereas if you've got a more rounded world of story and stuff then there's more ways in for the audience and in a way it kind of has a greater visibility
1: coming off the back of that you talked about community building around another project where i think you were specifically commissioned to do that was the terence davis film
2: the film's called of time and the city and we worked with the production company hurricane films at the beginning we built them a pitch site which helped them get the money then they made the film of time and the city which is a beautiful film with a very simple premise really which was Terence Davies reminiscing about his time growing up in Liverpool post-war as somebody who didn't like the Beatles and who was gay and that that was an interesting point of view to, to, to look at that and it was all archive footage with Amazing music, as Terence Davies always chooses. We took the same premise and we put it online and invited audience participation, user-generated content, and we made it possible for people to upload their stories. And that was initially on the Of Time and the City website. And then Hurricane Films raised some money from the Heritage and Lottery Fund, which then we built a system that would allow a bigger version of that facility in the website. And that, that's basically what happened. And that, that became like really successful, and I think people still access that site. I mean, it was built before mobile now. It was built, like, about nine years ago, but it was just before, kind of, mobile. And that, So it's, it's not particularly nice on smartphones to, to look at, but there's a lot of amazing old photographs of people and their families and their places and people writing in a very nice way about their experiences, but all through that same kind of lens of, of the original film. So it's very simple. I mean, the film's a documentary but it was a kind of a romantic kind of poetic documentary as such and people took that themselves upon themselves to make stuff i mean that site's still up it's www.peoples-stories.com
1: How do you think things are changing now, then, in terms of telling stories? We've had the sort of interactive stuff, and we've talked a little bit about some projects you personally have done with that, but obviously you're still going, and the interactive narrative space is exploding. And we've mentioned games. How else do you think telling stories interactively is changing? Is there a change in the actual literary form or is it a technology-driven change or
2: what? Like I said before, I think we're kind of rewinding pre-20th century. We get, we're get we not doing the publishing model, really. That, that does create problems for the kind of business models. But that's kind of finding new ways. I mean, it's, money in business is quite mercurial anyway. And it will find a way if there's there's money to be had, I guess. I mean, a lot of it's experimentation and the early days, it was very much about intellectual ideas applied to new technology scenarios. And I do a lot less of that these days. I kind of go with what feels right. And I think that's something to do with experience. The artist is the focal point and possibly the the initial creator. But I mean, if you get your audience co-creating with you, I think that's a really good place to be for any creative but obviously, you know, some of it, I think, is we want the artist to tell us a story and do a performance and be on the pedestal. And, and we kind of need that. We need our role models and our heroes and stuff. As per the changing of kind of storytelling, what's changing? Some of the things that I'm quite interested in at the moment are role player sort of scenarios. We're doing some stuff on WhatsApp. And we've got a kind of research project going on with WhatsApp called Secret Story Network. And that just came from some sort of experimentation with some friends. And we were telling stories, like like in a role-player scenario. Not that any of us are into Dungeons & Dragons or anything like that, but we were telling stories on WhatsApp. And I, I just, the light bulb went on for me, and this was about a year ago, and I just thought, this could be huge. And we we ran some tests, and we tried to improve it. We've done about sort of six Live stories with an audience. We try and have a bit of media going into the mix, but we have people kind of inventing characters and coming on board and being part of missions, and you know getting involved with the story. And that's been really successful. And we're just sort of starting a uh, research project with three universities. It's going to be ongoing over the next few months. We want really to be able to invent scenarios and characters and let people change their names at will and all that sort of thing which whatsapp just really doesn't let you do so i think at some point there would be a, a build on that but i think in terms of scalability i mean i with our experiments so far it's an optimum number is like 12 to 25 people any more than that and it gets a bit unmanageable and if it's not enough it's just feels a bit like there's no energy there but i think it could be interesting with more people i think depending on how we were able to kind of Wrap some technology around it that facilitated it and had different rooms with stuff kind of bubbling up. I would like to think you could do a story like it was a live event with a thousand people attached, but um, lots of people in my team just tell me I'm absolutely crazy.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? The story devices you're talking and and what you've talked about are all open-ended as opposed to cinema and TV, which is traditionally closed.
2: I mean, with these kind of RPGs on WhatsApp, for want of a better description of what they are, it's very difficult to know how much story to set up. And of course, we want to have some sort of rich media in there because that drives it along creates a bit of kind of buzz but if you do too much story too much media restricting the audience going somewhere really crazy which might be the most exciting thing for the story so it's a bit you really have to experiment and try not to be wedded to, to too much story in those scenarios really i mean we've been working on a lot of genre stuff with that but i think the next one of the next steps is to really take it away from genre and try some very kind of weird strange personal, possibly insular stories that that aren't genre-based, and see what kind of characteristics come up with that. I think that's really, really interesting area we're moving into with that.
1: Every time I talk to anyone about this, I always come back to games, because it just strikes me that games, which I think probably are going to be the dominant creative entertainment form, they are naturally open-ended, closed loops, they are scenario-based. I've been more engaged, a game um, called Cuphead. Brilliantly drawn, everything. But it's just short bursts of intensity, and there's nothing to it other than that. You know, your emotional state when you finished is incredible. I heard a, a big bang uh, a while ago, and Henry had thrown the, um, the controller down in fury because he just couldn't beat the thing. And I've never seen him do that with a game, you know, and it's, it's right. brought this fury out of him. And it did the same to me, and I just think... If games can crack that, if they can crack those really heightened emotional states, that's where you start to really be able to leverage, you know, storytelling and character because you've got the feelings of the audience.
2: Well, in games, I think you've got that ownership of story, whether whether it is like the playing characters who have voices or silent characters or being in a world. I think, you know, having agency within a story-based environment bind you to the story turns and events in a way that linear media cannot do it the same way really and i think if that's done well with artistry and feeling i think it can be incredibly intense really
1: let's think about the future of it in a couple of decades time when you when you're sort of not doing any of this and you're sat in a pub and you're drinking your pint of stout and thinking well i had a good career what do you think will be happening in storytelling and
2: narrative Well, I think VR is the one that's kind of under the... It's not under the hood because there's so much money and exposure, but there's absolutely sod all that's really great in terms of VR. I mean, there are some things kind of coming through... I mean, there's some games that I really, really want to play on VR. I think it has its limitations, just like, you know, projecting massive image at 24 frames a second on a massive screen has its limitations. But I think, I mean, one of the interesting things about games, it's such a massive, flexible, technology-driven industry that it subsumes all of these things like VR, social media. It's all just happening under the aegis of games, really, because games is so flexible as a kind of medium and as an industry. More VR, more stories and you still have authored stories, the whole sort of published model, but but more of the kind of interactive stuff. I wonder where we'll be with social media in 20 years' time. I think Facebook's great. I think it's completely tedious as well. I mean, in terms of Twitter, I was never big, big on Twitter anyway. I would never really have the time to spend on there. Facebook's ultimately more social. I, I really got into Snapchat. I did a lot on Snapchat and then I for about a year, and then I just sacked it off and stopped using it. Yeah, I like the format of a lot. And I like that thing of opening the app and the main screen on the app instead of being a feed of everybody else's rubbish was an open camera ready for you to take some action. I really like that. I just thought it was very exciting. For the younger generations at least, which I you know, I try and keep an eye on. I'm not saying that I'm young, but I, that's where I'm interested in what's coming next and how younger people are using technology. And for me, that was the big thing about Snapchat is it opens on the camera. And everything else is a social media feed and it was, became so boring. Inspiring. To take action and take a picture and get it out there and communicate. That was just like a revelation, really. In that app.
1: When it's low, back. It well, can't change that.
0: Low, so that was Richard Adams speaking to Krishna Stott. As I mentioned at the beginning, Krishna runs a company called Bellyfill, which you can find on bellyfill.co.uk. Essentially, they work with universities, businesses and individuals to look at how they can create interactive stories with them. The other thing that Krishna's doing at the moment is he is launching something called Heroes Villains Gamers, which are a set of addictive games or compelling stories. You can find out more about those at heroesvillainsgamers.com. That's all one word and actually why not hear richard and krishna talk about how you can get involved even more just to reiterate krishna stop at bellyfield.co.uk
1: that's not an email address sorry the website is bellyfield.co.uk if you want to come
2: call... yeah. and there's a contact form on there so hit me up if you want to find out more about the storytelling course or anything else or just be in touch i'd be happy to to receive any anybody via there
0: Thanks again to Krishna for being interviewed as part of this podcast and for Richard F. Adams for hosting the podcast. Actually, Richard's got his own exhibition coming up as well. So if you are interested in photography, then why not check out his exhibition called Modern Beauty? It's on in Hazelmere. You can find out more at richardfadams.com. The music for this month's podcast came from Lorenzo's Music and also from Broke for Free. So thanks to them and otherwise thanks for listening we look forward to speaking to you in a month from now but in the meantime take care so yes the podcast normally finishes here so why am i still speaking to you Well, it's actually because we've got a special message. I should say we're not getting paid for this. We are including this message because we think it's a really cool organisation and a special opportunity. Have a listen. Hello, this is Carla Rappaport. I'm the director and founder of the Lumen Prize. The Lumen Prize is the global award for digital art. It was called the world's preeminent digital art prize by the Guardian Culture blog, and it aims to raise the understanding, appreciation, and enjoyment of art created with technology globally. Anyone is eligible to enter the Lumen Prize. All you have to do is go to the Lumen Prize website, lumenprize.com, and all the information you need to upload your work and enter is there. So if you're an artist working with technology, then check it out. It's lumenprize.com. Thanks again and speak soon. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note
1: workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive
0: industry and where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these
1: ideas with experts in the field on our first technique mini-series about design thinking.
0: Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.